Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. We will dedicate this Torah study in the merit of Janie Wills for speedy recovery. And we're also going to dedicate it. It was Rabbi Wolby's birthday last Sunday. And I'd be remiss to not also dedicate this subject we're going to be teaching and learning to my wife, Shauna. But I, I want to start off by saying why I want to dedicate this in the honor of my wife, Shauna. So last year for her birthday, which we've always done for a number of years. So what she does is, cause I'm not that great of a gift giver when it comes to her. So we just started this thing a while back ago where she goes shopping. She comes back and says, you got me the most amazing birthday gift. I was like, oh, I'm good. But this year she said, I want something else. She goes, back when we first got married, you used to write me the nicest letters. You don't do that anymore. And I said, well, I had to do that sappy stuff when I didn't have money to buy you gifts. So I thought I was off the hook. And she's like, if I had to choose, I'd rather have the letters. But I don't want to choose. I want both. So I said, okay. I wrote a letter and I listed all the reasons that I love my wife. And as I was proofreading it, I realized it was a total lie. There was no truth to anything I wrote. Because as I was reading through it, all I was seeing was I was writing down everything she does for me. All the beauty she's brought to my life, all the joy, everything she does for me. And I had to go back and rewrite it and said, because it's your birthday, I wanted to write down all the reasons I love me. Because that's all it was a list of. And that's why this subject is very important to me. As I added at the end, it's obviously very lopsided. I'm going to work on this because love is an action item. And what I listed was all the action items she does for towards me, but it's obviously it's, it's very lopsided. And, you know, we think about too, like, you know, our relationship with God, we're commanded to love Hashem with all our heart, with all our soul and all our resources. So what is the action item for loving God? I would say the one of the number one ways uh, the action item of loving God with all your heart is what we start, uh, learned last week. It's gratitude. I mean, think about it. You tell your wife, I love you so much. And then you go on a tirade complaining about everything she does or vice versa. What, what do you think matters to them? It's the same thing with, with God is that's how we show our love for him is showing gratitude. We love him with all our heart and how we love him with all our soul course, is willing to give up our life for the three cardinal sins, idolatry, adultery. Most people are not, not only are they not willing to give their life, they're willing to do it anyway, and murder. And then all of our resources, of course, are taking our financial blessings, the money we get after tax, it's just the money we have free will over, and giving 10 to 20% of it, Sadaka. And what about our home? That's one of our resources. How do we Love Hashem, love God with that resource. Shalom by peace in the home. So that's why this subject is very important to me. About it, about 10 years ago, I, I was just beginning my Torah studies and I ordered a book. The book I ordered did not arrive. Another book arrived and I called the merchant. I got it through Amazon and I said, Hey, 
he sent me the wrong book. He was very friendly. He's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He goes, well, what book did you get? I was like, this book, Garden of Peace by Rabbi Arush. And he goes, oh, but that is a very good book. And, you know, nothing happens by accident. And I was like, well, look, I go, I understand that. But clearly there was an accident because I'm looking at the receipt from Amazon. He sent me the wrong book. I go, this book is about something about being a good, how to be a husband. Like, I'm just learning my tour. I need to really get into the meat and potatoes. This is not something I need to focus on. And right then I heard, and I look over my shoulder, and Shauna's putting the mail on my desk. And then she chuckles, rolls her eyes, walks out of the room. I turn back to the guy, and I said, you know, maybe on second thought, I should read this book. And the book was fantastic, but it was a total, you know, as I mentioned before, when you study Torah, Torah is a lens for the world. And when you, and it clears the world so you can see what's upside down. And there was so much there that was totally counter to all the information I received my entire life. I started doing this, but of course, because I wasn't continuing with my studies, I immediately started to revert back to my habits I had. And when I went back and studied this book like a year and a half ago, and I thought about the fact that I hadn't done any of these things and how amazing Shauna's life would have been if I had actually done what I should have done, which is studied over and over and over until it became habit and became ingrained in who I am. So what again, what I want to convey is two things today. One is why Shalom Bayi is the most important mitzvah. And I mentioned last time I taught, you know, the entire purpose of Torah is to have our neshama commandeer our body and elevate to be like an angel, greater than an angel. And really those are the same thing. They're really totally intertwined with one another. So when you look at, and you read something like Deuteronomy and you overlay it with Jewish history, it just totally matches up with everything that's taken place. And one of the things that it says in Deuteronomy is that we will be exiled out into the world so we can be a light into the nations. And in many respects, we have totally done this. Just yesterday, as I was sitting in my office studying Torah, I heard a knock on the door, and it was two older gentlemen standing there, dressed nicely. I know what they were there to do. It was to sell me a religion. I said, what can I do for you? And they said, we're here to uh, promote Bible study. And I was like, that's awesome. I was like, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm studying Torah right now because it's Shabbat. That's what we do. Just trying to let the salesman know that it's probably not, does not have a good prospect here. When you start talking about Adam and Eve and the sin and that we're here to rectify all that. And I said, that is awesome. I was like, that's basically what I'm writing a lecture for tomorrow. And at that point that you can sort of tell, like, this isn't going to happen. So he said, thank you so much. And I said, keep up the good work. But I went back to my office. And I was like, this is so fantastic. Because if you think about 3,300 years ago when we received the Torah and the other nations declined it, think about the other nations at that time. They were totally barbaric. You know, murder, theft, all types of sexual immorality. Children sacrifice. I mean, it's just not well-conducted nation. So when Israel comes into being, especially in the times of King Solomon, it was such a clear compare and contrast. But now I was thinking about that. Like it's, it's not, you see what's happening now. I mean, back then people were not walking around talking about the Hebrew scriptures is how he called it and God, which yes, they define it. They can't let go of that physicality and it has to be a image of a man. But when you think about 
where that started with the descents of Esau and Rome and Greece and then the Catholic Church. Rome had 10,000 different idols, most barbaric nations, and that has all evolved into these wonderful people walking around talking about God. That's amazing. But I would say that when it comes to this area, instead of us being a light into the nations, I would say that we have been more influenced by the other nations. And when I've talked to Rabbi Cohen, he's like, this is sort of like probably one more of the more final redemptions as we are on the doorsteps of Mashiach. And the other thing when you look at world history is it's sort of like moving on a pendulum, meaning it's where we go to where the world opens their arms to us and they say, welcome. We want to be friends. We want to do business. And then it shifts back the other way and they want to kill us and they push us out of their country. Back and forth, back and forth. And really what is happening there is God wants us to go out into the world, be a light to the nations. And if we start to let them influence us more than we're influencing them, then he backs away. Anti-Semitism has no guard to it. And they push us back. And we regroup. We focus back on our Torah, you know, and strengthen ourselves again. And then he opens the window again and lets us go back out to see how we do. And back around, I think it was 1820, Rabbi Hirsch, and this was at the beginning when the window was opening up again. You know, it was Europe, the Renaissance, the rest of the world was saying once again, we do want to be your friend again. Come on out. Come out of the ghettos. And so all the rabbis knew like, okay, here we go again. And they, and Rabbi Hirsch was one of the most prominent rabbis at the time. And so all the rabbis wrote him, okay, what do we do? We want to make sure we do this successfully this time. And he wrote a very interesting letter and he said, we will succeed this time if we do one thing. If we do this one thing, we'll be fine. And that is if we take padlocks and chains and we lock up every synagogue in Europe and don't let any Jews enter those synagogues for the next 100 years. Now, I think it might be even more than 100 years. I couldn't find that text yesterday to remind me what it was, but it was I know it was a minimum of 100 years. But that seems very strange, right? If we're going to preserve us as Jewish people, lock up the synagogues, no Jew goes inside. A little baffling. But here's what he was saying. As he was looking out to the world at the time, what was out there in the world? It was Christianity. And Christianity, what he was seeing was people that went to church on Sunday They bifurcated their life. They had a public persona and a private persona. And being a good, I've I've had people tell me this. I'm a good Christian. Why? Because I go to church on Sunday. That is what he did not want us to be influenced that way at all. Because that is not where God's presence lies. When it says in Exodus 25, 8, and they will make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell in them The commentators are very quick to point out that's not in it because it's not referring to a building. Them is referring to us in our hearts and most notably between a man and a wife in the home they established. And that's why Rabbi Hirsch wanted the rabbis to not go hide out in the synagogue. They wanted them out in the community, making sure that everyone was building those sanctuaries where it really counts and where it matters. So before we get to how to have peace in the home. I want to talk about something sort of that precedes that. And that is sort of the process we go through in identifying 
that, that perfect match. And I'm going to use this as an analogy. I like analogies because it allows problems to become external and then you see things more clearly. So imagine a, a boardroom setting. Long conference table, bunch of executives sitting around. The quarterly meeting is wrapping up. And then one executive says, I have one more piece of business to discuss. And they say, okay. It's like, as you know, we lost our chief financial officer last year. And I am proud to announce that I found the perfect CFO for our company. Perfect. I want to make an offer to him. And everyone around the boardroom table is like, oh, that's great. Tell us, you know, what you learned about this person. And the executive says, well, two weeks ago, I was going through a website that had profiles of various CFOs. And I came across the most attractive CFO I'd ever seen. And I was like, I have to meet this person. So I reached out to them and I said, let's set up an interview. And the person said, okay. So we met at this bar that I really enjoy having my libations at. And we had the most wonderful time. We were laughing the entire time. We had the best time. Couldn't remember most of it because, you know, we got a little drunk over time, but it was amazing. I knew right then, just like, oh, this is going to be the perfect chief financial officer. I just could feel it. But I know it's our protocol to have at least three interviews, so I set up a second interview. This time we went to see this movie, that new suspense movie out. It was fantastic, by the way. You should all see it. And we both had the most amazing time, and afterwards we could not stop talking about this movie. And we actually both really liked the same type of movies, and we loved the same actors, and it was amazing. And I knew right then and there, like, this is it. This is the perfect chief financial officer, but I want to keep the third interview. So the next time we went out and we went to this really nice Italian restaurant, we both love Italian foods and we both had the most amazing time and we started talking and this person likes the same sports teams as me. And it was so great. I, I could not get along. And afterwards I was like, this is it. And I'm telling you guys, ever, I, I cannot stop thinking about this chief financial officer. I mean, I just get giddy and so emotional. You know, and I just get butterflies in my stomach whenever I think about them. And that's why I want to make an offer to this chief financial officer at 20% above market price, equity fully vested. What do you say? <laughs> the executives would be sitting around the room like, are you out of your mind? You know, and then it's like, no, let me explain how this, you're not making an offer to that person. Let me explain how this process is going to work. Okay. You're going to look at a resume. You're going to find out what their skill set is. With their educational background, their their work experience, you're going to verify those facts before you do anything. And then you're going to set up an interview. And guess what? It's not going to be in a bar. You're going to do it here in the office, and you're going to share with them our mission, our values, what the role is. You're going to ask them questions pertaining to whether or not they will fit in with our organization. And if that goes well, then you will introduce them to the other people they will be interacting with. And after you've done all those things, then come back and we'll discuss it. Now, reverse that whole story. Rewind it all the way back. The executive says, I have one more piece of business to discuss. Everyone says, what is that? And the executive says, well, as you know, we're all close friends. I got a divorce last year. But I'm here to tell you that I met the perfect woman for me. It's like, oh, how did you meet her? It's like, well, I was looking at this uh, dating website and she was the most attractive, beautiful woman I've ever seen. I had to meet her. So we went to a bar. And we had the drinks and we had the laughs and we went to the movie and it had laughs and it was so much fun. And then we went, had dinner together and it was so much fun. We liked the same actors and I can't stop thinking about her. My heart goes pitter patter. I know she's the one. 
What's the reaction then? Oh, it's like right out of a romance novel. I knew there was such thing as love at first sight. This is totally it. Right? And there might be the skeptic in the room, the guy that says, hold on now. Hold on. Marriage is very, it's a big deal. Don't act too fast. And he's like, can we see a picture of that profile? He shows him the picture and he's like, oh, wow, she is hot. Okay. She likes to drink and she likes sports and she's this hot. You got to put a ring on that finger right away. You see how like upside down our world is because I didn't really get this until we're, we're, any of you here when Rabbi Ari was talking about, we sort of got him sidetracked and we were talking about the process that they use in the Torah observant community. The way I described the way we would vet a CFO or an employee is the way they go about it. And they know, too, they don't touch until they get married. Why? Because they know that passions and emotions, those are temporary. And they're looking for a long-term partner that's going to create children and grandchildren and future generations. So they know I'm not going to get all my emotions involved when I'm trying to vet them. So like when Rabbi Yokoff was telling me that when he was uh, dating or vetting Haya, they went for long walks. And they all had questions in advance. What is your, what's your mission? What are your values? How many children? Those things. That's what they were vetting. And when I got home that day and I was talking to Elsie, Elsie said, you know, she was sitting at the counter in the kitchen. She said, how was class? I said, we got the rabbi really off track. It was very cool. This is interesting. I told her everything he told us. And I said, it's pretty strange. Her look was confusion. And she looked back at me and she said, wait, I, I don't understand. She goes, is is that not the way all grownups do it? And I was like, no. I was like, I never heard of it that way. She's like, but that just makes logical sense. She says, wait, how did you do it? I was like, I went to a bar and saw a, someone that was a, a good looking woman. And I said, hey, my name's Dan. Can I buy you a drink? It's like, that's what you do? It's like, yeah, I sort of learned over time that sober women thought I was obnoxious and drunk women thought I was sort of charming. So I was going for the drinks. She goes, no offense, dad, but that's sort of stupid. You realize how lucky you are to meet mom. She goes, no offense, but I think I'm going to do thing Rabbi Wolby's way because that seems to make a lot more sense. And I was like, it does. It really does. So if you were looking at from the outside in, you like, this makes total sense. But I was thinking when I was in New York last time, I was in our company elevator. It's an older building. So it's sort of cramped in the smaller elevator. And I was like bunched up next to this 20 something hipster guy. And he had his phone out. It was that app Tinder, if you ever heard of this. So it was like he was looking at profile pictures of women. And he would like mm, scroll, scroll, scroll. Ooh. And he hit button. I guess it hits out some like things saying I want to. It's not even a dating app from what I understand. It's more like a hookup app. And he would scroll, scroll. And I got off the elevator and asked my colleagues. And I was like, is that, was that what he was looking at that Tinder app I've read about? He's like, yeah. He goes, the guy's total cheese ball. However, he goes, the guy's brilliant. That's his tech company across the hall. He is uber successful at a very young age, very smart. And I, and I was thinking like, okay, if I were to get a bunch of Manhattanites, very well-educated, smart, successful in business, they know how to run a business. They look at processes, which gets certain outcomes versus other outcomes and say, hey, I have another way for you guys to go about your social interactions with people of the opposite sex. And I show them, here's your process. The outcome is STDs, unwanted pregnancies, and, you know, who knows what else. So that's one possible outcome. The other is this business model. 
I wouldn't say it came from the Jewish community because it'd be religious, you know, and then they would immediately have a bias against it. But it's like, just here's a business model. And I present it. They would, I know, mock me. The response would probably be like, what are you, a time traveler from 1700? This is stupid. And why is that? Here's why I think that is. Because we've seen a lot of irrational behavior, even among the Jewish people over history, around this very matter. If you remember back when Bilam brought in the Midianite women, what did they do, have to do before they fornicated with the Midianite women? They had to pray to the idol Baal Peor. I may not be pronouncing that right. English translations, P-E-O-R, Peor. So what do they do in the house of worship of Baal Peor is... If you're not familiar with the, the religious service, they would stand in front of the idol. Then they would drop their pants and poop. Now, that house of idolatry does not exist anymore. My theory is, is that they realized it was just not economical to maintain a janitorial staff. <laughs> but so why would people do that? Jews who experienced the exodus. And all of those things. Why would they do such a thing? And the reason is, is because it allowed them to rationalize the act they wanted to do. And that is what led most of the nations to not accept Torah as well. So I want to talk about a little about the, the construct of men and women, our differences, but how we really should not look at them as differences. When you look at the creation of Adam, what the commentaries say is that Adam is both, was originally, Adam and Eve were one physical entity, one soul. And then he separated them. And while their bodies were separated and their nishamas to some degree were separated, what we have to understand is that in the heavenly realm, those neshamas are very much connected. All right, there's a text here I wanted to read from Rabbi Nachman, where he quotes from the Zohar. It says, in the Zohar, the soul is said to tower so high above the body that the body is called a shoe relative to the soul. On the lowest extremity of the soul fits, or only the lowest extremity of the soul fits into the body. Through our desire to come close to God, through our thoughts, emotions, speech, and action, we can bring down greater and greater illuminations of our own souls. In this manner, anyone has the ability to make his physical body a chariot or a temple for the highest parts of the soul, as did Moses. So where secular psychology in the realm of marriage counseling, what they are not able to see is what is happening at a spiritual level, because the, the souls are very interconnected there, and, and we'll touch on that more. One of the reasons why it was so necessary to have these two entities separated is the following. In the Talmud, Rabbi Eleazar said, what is the meaning of that which is written? This is a Torah verse, Genesis 2.18. I will make him a helpmate for him. What he says is, if one is worthy, his wife helps him. If he is not worthy, she is against him. So what does this mean? So one of the ways in which we become more connected to God, to have our neshamas come into our body is, of course, to improve our character traits. Rabbi Wolby mentioned that the other day when he was talking about humility. With humility, it's all the way to one extreme. But with many character traits, it's things like, you know, we have hesed, we have loving kindness, and we have 
judgment and proper balance, that's compassion. So if someone comes and says, hey, I want money for food, I'm starving, you give them money. That's compassion. If a drug addict comes to you and says, I need money for some more drugs, you don't give them money because that's compassion. And that's how God is interacting with the world, is keeping those things properly in balance for each person. That's just just one example. So the way we come closer to God is we refine all of our character traits. The challenge with that is our yetzahorah, our evil inclination, does not want us to do this. Like the other day, I was thinking about the character trait of patience. And I was trying to review in my head how I've been doing in this matter of patience. And before I knew it, my thoughts were thinking about another person who was impatient. And I was like, how did my thoughts get here? And I know how they got there. My yetzerah, just like, no, look out there. You're fine. Look out there. Don't look inside because if we were able to actually clearly see where we were off kilter, then we would put him out of a, a job, basically. We would be able to complete our mission. So that, that, and that's its task is to do that. And part of those character traits is our relationship with God. Either relationship with other, with fellow man or a relationship with God. So there's a concept in Torah, which you probably have heard of before called that the Bob Shev Tov spoke about called the mirror effect. Now God brings, he only brings people into our life that we can learn from and also will act as a mirror. Right. It's like all of you are in my life for a precise reason to, to learn from all your positive qualities. However, sometimes you may see someone that is experiencing a negative quality and it's not that you just notice it. It irritates you. And what that is, is God creating a mirror for you to look and see what character trait you really need to work on. Because then when you can see again, when the problem becomes external, we can see it clearly. When it's internal, the Yetzirah can clutter our mind around it. So one of the reasons we have a spouse is for this very reason. They are our clearest mirror of things that we need to work on. So, and I'll give you an example of how this may play out. From this uh, book, I read Garden of Peace. This is my own sort of analogy, but there's a husband and wife. The wife, over time, just becomes very jealous and not trusting of her husband. And the husband did nothing to deserve this, but just the wife starts to feel this way. She checks his phone every time he's out of the room, see if any women are texting him. She's constantly, uh, when he goes out of town business, calling up, who are you with? What are you doing? And she knows, like, there's no reason. I have no rational reason for doing this. I don't know what it is. She ends up going into therapy. They're exploring things that happened to her in her childhood to find out why she can't trust her husband and why she's jealous and thinks he's having an affair on her all the time. And then that's where their life goes on. And then the man dies, goes up to heaven. And God says to him, you know, the purpose of the physical world is for me to hide myself so that in that realm, we can really develop a close relationship because in that realm, you have needs. And therefore you can ask me to fulfill those needs. I can provide those needs and we can have this give and take relationship. And you never did that. You never put your trust in me. And I kept trying to help you build this relationship with me. So I, I tr- created financial difficulties all the time to get your attention. Never once did you pray to me for help. Never once did you acknowledge that I'm the one creating the financial challenges. You would turn to what am I doing wrong with my livelihood? How can I save more money? Why are these bills coming to me? How can I eliminate these bills? Never once turned to me. I kept doing that over and over and over again. 
hoping you would rely on me, ask me for help so we could develop this relationship. So I made it even more challenging as I kept trying. So this time I gave you cancer. And never once did you say, who gave me cancer? God. And who will heal me? God. All that was in your thoughts was, maybe it was the cigarettes I smoked when I was a teenager. Maybe too much red meat. And I know in your thoughts too, who'd you put your trust with? The doctors. Never once did you turn to me and ask for me to heal you. But I wanted to give you more time, so I let the doctors heal you. And now you're here, and you really didn't complete your mission. So the man's like, oh. By the way, a little caveat. When our nisham is plucked from our body and there's no yets or raw, there's no back and forth dialogue. The nishama just knows the truth. The nish- our own nishama is our own judge and jury once there's no yets or raw. Because the yets or raw is what calls us to justify our actions, defend ourselves. So there's no back and forth dialogue, but it's, it's better this way. So the man says to God, why couldn't you have just reminded me? I got so lost in the physicality of the world. I forgot. If you could just remind me once, I would have got my life together and done these things. And then God says to the man, I told you about every day. Who do you think gave your wife the compulsion to not trust you and be jealous of you? That was my way of communicating to you that I'm jealous. I want you to have trust in me. It was said to you on a regular basis. And that is precisely the way God uses us to help communicate things to us from him. So I want to talk to you about this whole idea of of masculine and feminine. Now, I spoke about this in an email a few weeks ago. I don't know if any of you caught that, but it's the whole idea of what what when we read in the Torah about masculine and feminine, giving and receiving, there's a... uh, I don't know if I probably, it probably was not the best venue for discussing this. But, you know, like here we have gender neutral Tanakhs and prayer books. And really what that is doing is locking away one of the most important principles of Torah. Because the idea behind those books is, well, God's referred to as a he. That's you know, sort of sexist. Maybe God's a woman. Well, to think that God is any gender is idolatry. That's it. What they're failing to understand is that masculine is being in a state of giving and feminine is being in a state of receiving. Because we also know from the Torah that when the Jews were at Mount Sinai, that was our wedding canopy. And the Jewish people, men and women, were God's bride because God is always giving. And then on Shabbat, we welcome in the Shabbat bride, the Shekinah. Means that all the Jewish people, men and women, are the groom, and the Shekinah is the bride. And we should also know that people who are giving are also receiving, because if you've ever given that perfect gift to someone, which I disclose has never been to my wife, but my daughter have gotten right lots of times, and they open up the present, and they're so happy, and they're ecstatic, I get more pleasure out of that than from receiving a gift. All of you have. And I don't want to phrase this correctly. God has no emotions. Everything that he, the way he interacts with us is something he first has to will into his existence first. But the way God willed into existence, the way he receives pleasure from us, as I mentioned from the gratitude, is giving us up, watching us enjoy it. You know, it's the same way. And really, if it was up to him, we would all be billionaires with perfect health. It's just that we are not receptacles to receive that much pleasure which is is all built on forging in more and more gratitude. 
So I want to touch more on the, the masculine feminine thing and how that applies to marriage. I want to go back to some Torah verses. In Genesis 3.16, Eve's curse. And your craving shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Rashi says, the craving is your desire for relations. But even so, you do not have the nerve to ask him to have relations with you. The initiative is his alone and not from you. Talk about an upside-down world, because... I'm not seeing this play out in society. You know, we have in the uh, our ketubah, all the obligations are on the man on what he has to provide to the wife. Honor, respect, all her financial needs, and marital relationship. And the, the frequency of the marital relations is built on a formula based off their livelihood, how much energy and time it takes. So just imagine that the ketubah became Texas state law, but it was flip-flopped, where the marital relations responsibility was on the woman to provide to the man. I'm telling you from every conversation I had, and I've talked about this with my wife, Shauna. Every time I talk to a guy over the years, he says, ah, marriage's not going that great. What's wrong? We just used to have marital relations all the time, and it just doesn't happen anymore. And I told my wife that after we started studying this area of Torah, and she's like, yeah, I hear the exact opposite from women. So what's happening? Because if the ketubah was reversed, you would see the court dockets filled up for the next millennia, probably, in my estimation, and every time you drove by a courthouse, there'd be men outlining the door, waving their ketubas, saying, retribution. So what's going on here? I'll, ex- I'll explain basically why these things are upside down. And there's another important principle here, which I'm going to share. My request is that the guys do not get mad at me, that the women do not use this against their husbands when they go home, and that my cell phone doesn't blow up with angry husbands. But the reality is, is that... Since the majority of the room is women, this will probably be good. So get those, so keep your interest. I would say there's probably some exceptions to this, but what the books and everything I read are very clear about every marital problem originates with the husband. It really does. And I'll explain why. When a man prays to God for blessings for himself, for his family, for the Jewish people, is he in the feminine state or the masculine state? Feminine. He's receiving. When the husband gives to the wife, and what is a husband supposed to give to a wife? Honor, respect, making her know that she's in in his heart first place. Then he is giving, and now he is masculine. When the wife takes care of the children, she is in a state of giving. She is masculine, and both and her children, both male and female, are feminine. That is the way the masculine and feminine work in the spiritual realm. But what's interesting is, is that there's many sources in Torah where you hear the phrase male sons. Like in Exodus 13, 13, it says, redeem every firstborn male among your sons. You know, in the written Torah, there's no extra words. So why would it not just say redeem every firstborn son? And when I, when I went into, uh, if you're not familiar with safaria.org, it's basically they've we're really getting like all the Torahs on there online now. And I would, I just searched for male sons and it was like lots of places. Like it showed up in the, in the Talmud and several sources. What does that mean? Male sons. And, and what that means is that a male is not a man until he marries because w- within the venue of marriage that he can now give to a wife and move into a state of masculinity. So the reason why the world has become upside down 
and everything is holding true. It's just that when men are lusting after their wife, they are moving into the feminine state and everything, the curse against Eve follows through perfectly. And the woman moves into a masculine state because he controls who's in what direction. Now, the woman has no, again, Tor mandate for that. And plus, her nisham is confused because she wanted to marry someone who's masculine. And he's operating and acting very feminine, which is where we've also become, I'll tell you, the reason we're upside down here is because, of course, society teaches us something totally different. Like when I was a kid, growing up as an adolescent, the one show I would stop playing outside during the summer to go watch was Happy Days. And who I think was the coolest character, of course, was Fonzie. What made him cool? You know, barely had to do anything. The bad guys, you know, the bullies would run off. And he would just snap his finger and all the young ladies would drape their arms around him. He was so cool. Then you had James Bond. Same thing. Always looking dapper, never breaking a sweat, getting all the bad guys. Always at the end of the movie, he beds the beautiful woman. Rabbi Wolby was talking last week about the reason I doesn't have TV in the house is because you're either part of those doing the brainwashing or being brainwashed. When the TV first came out, I've read like debates, like why they don't want that. You don't, we don't understand how subtle this messaging is. And it's totally counter to Torah. And so that is to me was my idea of being a man. And so in my twenties, sort of how I lived again, I always initiative relationship with can I buy you a drink. Then I got the number. Then we went out and usually by the third date, when the conversation started coming up about like, what are we doing this Friday? It's like, what do you mean? What are we doing? It's boys night. It's like, well, I, you know, let's make plans. And, and then I'd always get to like, this is getting way too complicated. And I, I didn't, it you know, it's sort of like three dates, four dates, maybe. And that would, that'd be it. And so our Fonzie, James Bond, and the way I was acting in my twenties, were we acting in the masculine state or the feminine state? We were operating very feminine. We are just wanting to receive and take. But we're, we are taught, we are, when I say that the rest of the world is, is sort of influencing us versus us influencing the world. This is an area where I think we've become very influenced because it's, it's totally the opposite. And when you look at the, the man, the woman too, there, the, the Yetzer hurrah with the woman is strongest with her desire to have honor. It's strongest with the man for lust. So let's address the man. Why did God have to do that? Well, because 99.99% of the world population was not going to be Torah observant men, and he needed everyone to fulfill the mitzvah of procreation. So one of the things that happens in marriage is we repair each other. Because we come to marriage, and what makes the woman whole is by us simply giving her honor and respect and making her first place. And the man starts to elevate that lust, but... Only Moses and his wife, Zipporah, were the only people where God said they both elevated so far beyond the physicality that they totally separated from each other in a physical way. And that's what Miriam was rebuked with by Hashem by giving a leprosy because she made a comment about that. So that's not the way for us common folks, but the wife allows that to happen in a sanctified way. However, when the man is focusing on just giving honor and respect, then she desires it and then he provides it. That is when everything is operating in harmony. You know, there's so many differences too between men and women. Like in, in our culture, it's like, that's so sexist. 
but it's definitely true. And I see a lot as well where people misinterpret things in Torah and say, why should only the men wear tefillin? Women should be able to wear tefillin too. And you can, but I don't think you're understanding that what, if, if the Torah is sexist in any way, I think the only thing God is telling us is that women, when they were, when we were two halves of the same entity, they got the choicer parts. Spiritually speaking, they're much more connected, so they don't need the tefillin. Men are required to pray three times a day. Women are not. Why? Because they're naturally inclined to pray to God throughout the day. We are more hardwired because he had to hardwire us more with less to make sure that non-Torah observant people would procreate. It meant that we were more wired into physicality. And so we have to do more things to, as a Jewish people, to elevate above that physicality. So one of the things is praying three times a day. And I know I have a counter reminder for Mika and it pops up and I'm like, I don't, I'm right in the middle of something. And I hit like the snooze button on it. It's like I'll do it in an hour. And then when I finally do it, say that prayer and I'm asking for all these requests. And one of those requests you make are to make our livelihood go easy. It's like, why would I hit the snooze button on that? I would just, get up right then and there, say that prayer, ask for his help. And then, you know, all the challenges I have with work would go away quicker, but that's why he requires it of us because we'll get so stuck in a physicality that we need that extra requirement to, to stop and do that. Also think about seat seat. I know a lot of women wear talis, no harm in that at all. But if you want to know what that mitzvah means is in the Shema, it says when he talks about seat seat and it shall constitute seat seats for you that you may see it. And remember all the commandments of Hashem and perform them. And this says, and you shall not explore after your heart and after your eyes, after which you stray, so that you may remember and perform all my commandments and be holy. So when we ever hear that we're being holy, it's talking about sexual purity. The mitzvah are all around re- reaching that goal. The reason this pertains to the man and not women is because it's for the man to protect themselves. So when you look at, you know, the way the, uh, the body operates, when the body needs nourishment, it sends a signal to the brain saying, feed me. This body needs nourishment. Anybody needs sleep. Body says, Hey, we need to divert all our energies just to repairing this body. You need to go sleep. And we begin to feel sleepy, eliminate waste. Same way. Sexual urge, totally flip flopped. It's the mind that obviously gets initiated by the eye. That leads to the body. That is why the seat seats are there. So you will not explore after your heart and after your eyes after which you stray. So the seat seat are there for, that's what they're there for is for the, the, the man to use that. And so there's no harm if woman does it, but don't look at it like, well, it's not fair that I don't get to wear that too. It's just like really a woman's response to be these poor guys need this. They need to fill in to connect to God at a level that I can connect to God without to fill in. If the Torah sex is all, it's God saying, the man is a little, is very deficient. And I wouldn't look at it as, that's not fair. I don't have the intuition of a woman, but I'm married to a woman. There's a great guy I like to listen to. Uh, his name is Gedalia Finster. He teaches a lot of Rabbi Nachman. He's not an ordained rabbi. And he was talking about, he he's a businessman. And often when he gets approached with a business deal, he'll look at it. And he said, like the one he was just talking about was everything looked perfect. The whole business model, looking at relation to the the marketplace, perfect. Like nothing go wrong with this. But he knows the the rule. 
He doesn't do any business deal with anyone unless his wife, until his wife gets the opportunity to meet with that person. So the wife meets with this person and afterwards she says, nah, don't do business with this guy. I don't know what it is, but something's not right. And sure enough, later on that year came out in the news that that other person had been bezzling money from his other businesses. And he said, look, that was like one out of many stories where the wife doesn't feel right. And it's always worked because it's, 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 it's not like a level of prophecy where she knew this guy's an embezzler. It's just, she just, it's enough though that woman just gets that bad feeling. Apparently the women here sort of know like, yes, this is what we experience. We just get bad feelings. We know don't proceed. Us men were like, where's the data? I don't see it. It's sort of like we each have delineated responsibilities. And if we look at us, because at the soul level, we are one entity when we become married, then it's not like, oh, they're like this and I'm like this. It's There is no I in, in them. It's we're one entity and we just basically have our responsibilities sort of separated. So the, as far as Torah advice on how to have peace in the home, we have laws like the laws of Yakud. What those are, those are the laws around making sure that we're a man and a woman are not who are not married are not in a secluded space. This is all these laws around that. And again, the outside world is like, that's so antiquated. Really? I mean, I think in the hashtag me too era, there was a lot of people that may have been falsely accused, but they had followed the laws of Yakud, they would have never been there. And that's why the laws of Yakud are ways of God's way of telling us to build a protective barrier against potential misconduct. I have some experiences with this. I have a high school friend of mine, Julia, that we've grown up together. And I know her husband very well. But in high school, she was dating another friend of mine that I was closer with. So I sort of know him better. And we always like to get together and catch up. And we were going to get together for lunch about three years ago or so, or maybe more. And her husband, Terry, couldn't make it. My wife, Shauna, couldn't make it. So we go to this restaurant, have a really good time catching up and talking. And then that night... My friend Julia calls me and she says, you won't believe this. I just got a call from my mom, frantic, saying, I heard you're having an affair. And Julia said, she's like, what are you talking about? One of our friends from church saw you at the restaurant with this other man. And then Julia said, no, that's Danny from high school. And she's like, oh, Danny? Oh, just I'll I'll set her straight. Tell Danny I said hi. Julia said, like, it's so funny. I was like, yeah, but you know the moral of the story is, is that if Terry and Shauna can't make it, we shouldn't go because it's still, you don't know how that's going to be perceived. And then last year I had this uh, dinner with uh, a guy that's with one of our, our new strategic partners. And he was talking to me. He was telling me about the pains of his divorce. It was brutal. I mean, just financially just wrecks you and the pain on the children. And he told me, he said, and I tried everything. And he's basically almost calling himself a saint. I did everything to make this marriage work. My wife was just evil and bitter and a horrible person. I can't tell you the links I went to, to make my marriage right and make it work. And I said, well, you know, I don't think I've had to ask what he did. He was willing to tell me all that he did to make the marriage work. What he did was this. There was a woman he worked with who was also having marital problems. So he would get together with her and they would share advice on how they could help each help each other out with their spousal problems. And then he would go home to his wife and say, 
you know, I was talking to so-and-so, this other woman, and these are the things that you could be doing better as my wife. If you could just fix these things, then we will be fine. I tried so hard. I tried to do that. And the whole time I was just like, wow, that didn't work. I can't imagine from your wife's perspective coming home. I was like, I was talking to the so-and-so from work. And she said, you could do this. <laughs> and meanwhile, we know that what we're, the man's supposed to be giving the wife is honor, respect in first place. And I can't think of anything further from that. And so I asked him, I had to, I said, so, uh, whatever happened to the other woman, your friend? He's like, her marriage didn't work out either. They got a divorce, but we're together now. Exactly. I was like, woo, what a plot switch. I didn't see that one coming. And I remember driving home just, ah, thank you, God, for making me Jew and giving me Torah. For giving me Torah because I probably would have been done something that stupid, not knowing how this works. And then uh, if you're not familiar with the laws of Nita, it says that period of separation Two, two weeks out of the year, which again, we, when I first heard that, I was like, it's almost like demeaning to the wives. Like, oh, it's that time of the month. So oh, I don't want to touch you have cooties. That's sort of how I interpret it. It was like, it's so primitive, but it's, it's not that it's, it's, uh, actually when I was Googling it, interestingly enough, I don't know if some of you remember, uh, Dr. Westheimer. She was the, the sex therapist that had the radio show forever. With regard to La Nita, she called it the most sophisticated method of maintaining libido in long-term monogamy that she's ever encountered. Of course, God created it. It's during around two weeks out of every month when the, the woman is going through the, that period that you don't touch. You separate from each other. Not to, like separate, but you don't touch each other. And what that does is that sort of reignites when that period's over, like recreating the honeymoon over and over again. Because we're hardwired, for one, as I mentioned, the you know way to love God is through gratitude, and we're hardwired to sort of become, take for granted things. That is just another way of allowing us to uh, not get so accustomed to something that we we don't appreciate or take it for granted. Now, my wife and I do this forever, but she always said that the best thing for our marriage was the fact that I travel in business regularly. It, it's just I'm better in small doses than like all the time, especially when I work from home. Another idea the book points out too is is that because the woman has so much intuition, they're so tied in. There's things they're aware of, although they can't articulate them. And so the example the book used, you know, a scenario where a man comes home from work, worked all day, slaving, trying to make a livelihood. He comes home, his wife is just being really sort of nasty towards him and rude. And he can't figure out why. He's like, why? Why? Where does this come from? I work all day and I come home. This is the way you treat me. And then she can't figure it out. And she feels bad about herself. And she gets sort of sad about it. It's like, I, I don't know why. It's just, do feel right. And the book points out, but if the man is driving home from work and he sees a woman and he says, hubba bubba, and he considers some thought about her, even though the woman doesn't know what it, she knows. She knows. And so when we say like, you know, based off courtroom evidence, yeah, nothing's there. But really what's happening in the spiritual realm, those things, we let our eyes look around or do things like that, our wives do pick up on it. They, they won't be able to intellectually understand it, but they're emotionally, they're not going to feel right. They're going to feel like something's missing. So we just need to examine if we come home and see some irrational behavior, we need to sort of examine our thoughts. You know, I, Sean and I were brought up in the culture of, secular culture of, look but don't touch. 
but that was doing great harm to her. We, I didn't know any of that before I came religious or studying. And it, it does do tremendous harm. And that's why we're supposed to, as men, guard our eyes from everything. Like when the, the magazines arrive in the house for the wife, I don't need to know Victoria's Secret. We don't need to open that up. Many of you remember my friend, our friend Robert Lipstedt, the man in the wheelchair. Some of you may have come in past that time. I think he passed. I think it was last October was his third. Your site was this last October. But anyway, Robert Lipstedt was a, came a good friend of mine. And the way I met him is he came to services at TBT much longer ago. And then he was staying at a Medicaid facility here. Now, his background was he was a successful lawyer. His hobbies were running and nutrition. And then a year later, Hashim, whatever reason, wanted him to be in a wheelchair with Parkinson's. And the the financial devastation that caused him caused him to quickly end up being in a Medicaid facility, which is not the place you want to be when you don't have he didn't have wife or kids. His only family was his sister in, in uh Pennsylvania. And you need an advocate at those places because people were, I mean, the nurse, the nurse staff would steal stuff from them. I mean, like, really like plastic hangers. I had to put a note in the closet to shame people saying, I got these for like $2.25, a dozen of them. If you need any plastic hangers, please see me. I'll be happy to get you plastic hangers instead of stealing them for my incapacitated friend. But I have to go there once a week, get his laundry, come back, wash it. Cause he, they would just lose his laundry and it would just come back piled on the floor in his closet. And he's in a wheelchair. So he couldn't even get to, it was just a mess. So I would do his laundry, bring, get it, bring it back, hanging everything up, make sure he had it with Shawnee would do shopping for him, take him doctor's visits. Very, very time consuming, but you know, it's my buddy and there was no one else there to help him out. And I wasn't going to leave him there at the, with the wolves at the Medicaid facility. I had to buy phone chargers in bulk. Because those were always going out, and that was his only way of contacting us. So I was like, okay, here's one up here. Plug that in. Put this one on your mattress. And then when that one goes, I'll replace the other one. It was very sad. So anyway, one day we're on a doctor's visit. And he looks over to me, and he says, how are you possibly being a good husband to your wife between work and all the time you spend taking care of me? He goes, I appreciate it. But how are you possibly doing that? And I said, Robert, everything's good at home. It's all good. Getting the work done, getting this done, getting you taken care of. All's cool. He goes, I don't believe it. It's not possible. And he goes, I don't want you any more of your help until I know you have had a conversation with your wife and you asked her, is everything okay? I was like, okay, I'll, I'll have that conversation when I get home. So I get home and I sit with uh, Shauna and I say, uh, is everything okay with us? She says, you know, I'll be honest with you. You know, you were very busy when you were the president of TBT because with all the building renovations that I was initiating. And I'm glad you did that, but kept you very busy. And I'm glad you're helping out Robert. I'm glad you invite him over here. I'm always happy to cook, do everything. But I'll be honest with you. I've been sort of sad for a while because I can't help think that everyone is more important to you than me. Because you're always running around doing everything for everyone else. Where do I fit into this equation? I just don't feel like I'm the number one priority in your life. And I, I read the story in this book of Garden of Peace, where it talks about this wonderful Sadiq. Give Sadaka, Torah teacher, businessman, cares for the sick, the whole community is like this. This man is so wonderful. 
And then it's his time and he passes. And it's before God. And God says, wow, you, you really blew it. It's like, what are you talking about? I'm a sodic. You were running around doing all those things. Meanwhile, here's your wife. She was so sad. She was crying every night because you weren't paying any attention to her. I don't care about those other mitzvot. If it's at the cost of that, the most important mitzvot is your wife. That's what you were there for. And the, and the peace in the home and what you created there. Then you do the other mitzvot. The, you think about the laws of giving sadaka. It's like these in the, in the Shukon Aruch, it's these concentric circles. First, people get sadaka, the people in your home. Then it builds out from there based off community. You know, it's the same thing here. If we don't make sure those needs are met in that order, then it doesn't matter what we do in the world. It doesn't matter if the community thinks we're the most amazing people. If our spouse is not happy and we don't have a strong marriage, the other stuff doesn't matter in God's eyes. And and back to my original point, too, about what Rabbi Hirsch was trying to help us avoid, about these two personas that many people have, the public persona, the private persona. We look up to people who have these great public personas, but the we learn about their personal life, not that great. Like Martin Luther King, fantastic what he did. Civil rights, he was an adulterer in his private life. In the Torah world, there is no two personas. And that's why Rabbi Hirsch said we need to focus on that private life because that's the only life God's looking at because that's our true persona. I am happy to say next week, Rabbi Wolby, the professional will come back. I do appreciate you guys coming out. I do hope there was some uh, some concepts that you can take back to your life and make it richer and fulfill this very important mitzvah of Shalom Bayit. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.